Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Who's out at O'Hare. And, you know, after all the mess over the holidays and the software crash from the FAA and the software crash from Southwest Airlines and the weather. Uh, imagine my surprise when Jerry texted me footage of American Airlines flight attendants walking a line and chanting. Listen to this real quick. I immediately got in touch with Jerry and I was like, hey, if you're going to be there at at two o'clock, could we give you a call and you could tell us what's going on? Um, I believe the protesters, it must have been maybe maybe it was just a lunch hour job action or something, um, because Jerry said a minute ago that they had all gone back inside. But Jerry, Jerry Riles from WCPT live at O'Hare. What happened out there, Jerry? Yeah, Joan, it was a crazy scene out here about an hour ago at O'Hare International Airport. Uh, at Terminal 2, Joan, there were probably approximately, I would guess, 100 to 150 uh, uh, what's believed to be flight attendants for American Airlines uh, walking the line and uh, chanting, we don't want your chili. They said, we, we don't want your chili. You can have your chili back. We just want our contract. So obviously they were uh, protesting against uh, low wages, and it was pretty adamant, pretty uh, demonstrative, and it seemed to get some support from uh, passerbyers, uh, people going to and from the airport. We're at Terminal 2 right now, um, just outside, but since the time that I texted the information and sent you the, uh, the chants and the pictures and everything, they have dispersed, so I don't know if it was a uh, lunchtime move or or what it was, but uh, it was pretty active. And the police were on hand, and they let them protest uh, peacefully. Um, but as I stated, Joan, it was a, probably about 100 to 150 uh, million. There were a lot of people, uh, yeah. yeah. And I was I have to tell you, when I first, when you first sent me that, um, that video with, with the audio of them chanting, all I could think of was, oh, my God, no, no, not another thing at O'Hare that's going to lead to cancellations and delays. Um, but I think yeah. that you're probably right. Maybe they wanted to make a point without, at least this time, this time without taking a job action that actually disrupted the flight schedule. Of course, that doesn't mean that next time um, they'll stay um, and they'll follow the same rules. Um, I'm, I'm, I actually got out my, um, my, uh, my information online because, um, I'm taking next week off. Ray and I are going to go out to the West Coast and see our kids. And wouldn't you know, I was like, Oh, please don't let's say we're on American. Please don't say we're on American. And, I, and guess what, Jerry? I'm on American. So I fully expect you to stay on top of this. Um, because oh, yeah. if I'm going to have to make other arrangements, then that's exactly on top of it i'll stay on top of it as best i can but i was here because i just dropped my wife off who's uh flying out of town and as i rounded from terminal one to terminal two i I see the the protesters and it was a large group and as you heard they were chanting very very loudly 
Mm-hmm. And uh, again, organized and, and peaceful of some sorts, but uh, the police allowed them to, to do their protests. And evidently, it was a short protest for uh, doing a lunch hour, I, I would imagine. Um, but of course, uh, the wages are the number one factor regarding these, these flight attendants. And, you know, with gas prices going up and uh, eggs going up, uh, everyone's saying, uh, you know, we got to pay more for uh, living expenses and all of that. But our wages aren't going up, so yeah. uh, the flight attendants, you know, they they they're in this uh, ball game too. But uh, luckily, it wasn't really that busy with traffic uh, to and fro. But um, again, the, the, the protesters about a hundred, hundred fifty of them uh, out here protesting for higher wages for uh, flight attendants. Well, I know that um, I know that United is based in Chicago, but I believe American is based in uh, Houston or, or Dallas. So I don't know if there are any American Airlines executives listening to us now, but if you are listening to us now, please give these wonderful people everything they want, please. Okay, for those of us who are booked to fly on your lovely airline, we really want to take those trips. So, um, yeah, and it's interesting. Uh, there was no real uh, disturbance on any part. And uh, I talked to a few people afterwards, and they were totally unaware of, you know, the, the uh, organized protest going on. So, uh, again, it probably was called up around the, uh, the noon hour, and uh, they figured it'd be out probably for an hour. Uh, getting their message in, uh, uh, across to, to publicly to everyone. And then um, they disperse. So, uh, yeah. Well, you know, these uh, unions representing workers, when there's going to be a job action like this and it's going to be significant or presage something significant like a work stoppage, they usually send out press releases. So people like me and all the other people who might be reporting on this or talking about this know what's going on in advance and kind of can prepare. But I was going back through, I thought, geez, did I miss something? Did something go out from the flight attendants union? But um, I did not see anything. So I'm sure if this doesn't get them what they want and this becomes the threat of a much larger job action. I'm sure they will let us know and we will share that information. But, Jerry, thanks for being so on the spot and willing to dro- drop everything to be our man on the street again. Well, you got it. Anything for you, Joan. I appreciate everything that you do for the station and for the city of Chicago. And uh, whenever there's news breaking, if I'm around, I'm going to share it with you for sure. Thanks, Jerry. Jerry Riles uh, out at O'Hare where American Airlines flight attendants apparently had uh, sort of a lunch hour walkout uh, to remind management that they still don't have a signed contract. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, let's go on to some of the other news of the day. You ha- have to enjoy this. You really, you really have to enjoy this. Um, documents <laughs> have been found um, at... Um, Mike Pence's Indiana home documents that shouldn't be there. CNN is reporting that there's they don't have word yet on whether or not there are any classified documents. But the article I read this morning in The Washington Post said that some of the documents that this lawyer found at Mike Pence's Indiana home are definitely classified. So far, they've found about a dozen documents. You know, when, um, you know, Donald Trump 
Donald Trump was a different situation. He lied to investigators. He lied to the National Archives. He lied to the FBI. He obstructed justice. He had his lawyers lie for him. Joe Biden, uh, they're finding some documents from when he was vice president, some of them classified. He has been completely cooperative. One of the things that I've noticed on social media is that there seems to be some confusion, like, well, they subpoenaed Trump. Why didn't they subpoena Biden? Let me explain what a subpoena is. If law enforcement wants something from you, they want to look at your house and make sure there are no on there are no classified documents. They shouldn't be there. They want to talk to you about something. They ask. For months, the FBI and the archives were trying to work with Donald Trump's people. Let us come. Let us look. No, no, no. Well, then sign a legal legal document that says everything's gone. And none of his lawyers wanted to put their name on it. The guy who wrote the document that said, oh, we don't have any more classified stuff, wouldn't sign it. He gave it to another lawyer. And she was like, well, I can't sign this. I don't know for sure. And then she wrote in a line something like, there are no more documents to the best of my knowledge, thinking that somehow that was going to give her cover, which it has not. If you tell the FBI and the National Archives to go pound sand, I'm not talking to you. I'm not letting you look at my house. I'm not letting you go through my baskets of papers. No, I'm not helping you at all. Then the FBI or whatever organization it is can go to a judge and say, we have reason to believe that we're being lied to. We have reason to believe that the evidence we're searching exists here. And then the judge signs a subpoena, which is no longer, we're no longer asking nice. We're no longer playing nice. It's no longer just among friends. It is a legal order that you must, like when the cops show up and they say, we want to search your basement and you say no. And they say, well, we've got a warrant. Then you're out of luck. If you get a subpoena, you're out of luck. That is the government, the law, law enforcement telling you you had a chance to cooperate voluntarily. You didn't. So now we're going to force our way in. That's the difference between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And that's why Joe Biden didn't get a subpoena, because he has been completely cooperative. You want to look at my house? Sure. Hey, here's the keys to the garage. Um, I got this storage locker. You probably ought to look there, too. And now... I told you when this first happened that if I were Barack Obama and if I were President George Bush and if I were President Bill Clinton, I'd hire a team of lawyers ASAP and have them start going through, you know, oh, that box. I think it's tax documents, but you better look through it, guys. And I don't know if Mike Pence did that, but lawyers found documents that shouldn't be there from when he was vice president. They were at his home. And before we go to break, I just want to share with you Mike Pence, uh, who, God love him, still thinks he's got a shot to be president. I don't know. Um, He is appealing to the serious evangelicals. I mean, when I say serious, I mean seriously far right, like the racist and anti-Semitic evangelicals, the ones that 
and believe that LGBTQ people should go to jail, evangelicals. Those are the people he's courting right now. But back when the documents were first found in, um, where were the first ones? Biden's house or Biden's garage. Mike Pence went on Fox News to talk about that. Listen to what he had to say then. The handling of classified materials and the nation's secret is a very serious matter. Uh, and uh, as a former vice president of the United States, I, I, can, uh, I can speak from personal experience about the attention uh, that ought to be paid to those materials when you're in office uh, and after you leave office. And clearly uh, that did not take place in this case. But the, the, treat, the unequal treatment before the law was deeply troubling to me early this week. Unequal treatment before the law, A, is crap. That's him still trying to get Trump to love him. And um, do you think anybody's replaying that soundbite for him today? Well, sort of like, you know, when I was vice president, I understood that you got to treat these documents very carefully. But, you know, not everybody does that. Maybe just me. I could be the only one. Oopsie. Oopsie. I'm sorry. They were at my house. A dozen of them. Some of them classified. Oopsie. Uh, Let's take a break. We'll talk about more stuff going on right after this. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. You know, I have the best and the smartest and the most well-informed listeners, I think, of any radio station, any radio show in Chicago or anywhere. Let's go to the phone lines. Jim from Chicago has a great idea he wants to share with us. Hi, Joan. How are you? Mount Vernon should be searched immediately. I know that George Washington must have left some papers there somewhere. They, they, can't, have, they, can't, they can't have counted them all. So we've got 45 presidents, and we've got what, 45 vice presidents, and a couple of them were mixed in between. So there's uh-huh. those confidential documents. You know, we've talked about this last week. They have a better system for this than they sure do. People's houses two or three years later and saying that we've got documents that are uh, beneficial to uh, intelligence, apparently. But uh, I just Mount Vernon would be a good place to start. Anyway, Jill, thanks a million things. Or Mount Rushmore. Maybe there's some documents tucked under those big statues. Um, but, you know, Jim raises a good point, and we did talk about this before, that there has to be a better system because dollars to donuts, would you bet against it if we sent teams of lawyers to look in all the garages and all the storage areas and all the office areas for President George Bush, President Bill Clinton, President Barack Obama, hell, even uh, elderly Bush, who's passed away, you know, where, you know, his office documents are probably stored somewhere. You know that stuff that should have been turned over to the National Archives is going to pop up. Basically, when you're president... Even if you just scratch yourself a little note, a little post-it note, you know, stick it on the desk, all of that material is supposed to be preserved in some way. As you know, um, 
when a president has a presidential library, they always donate their quote unquote presidential papers. Those are some of the documents that they used. They wrote speeches and other things when they were in office. Obviously, if something is classified, secret, top secret, eyes only, whatever, those are never supposed to leave. Those are supposed to go from one secure spot to another secure spot. And when the presidency is over, they go to the National Archives. But the volume of paper that these administrations create is staggering. Staggering. I mean, it isn't just everything that's written down. I mean, there's a phone log. Everybody who calls the White House, the who they are, when they called, what their title is, that's all listed. Um, so are there papers in uh, Barack Obama's storage locker or George Bush's storage locker that shouldn't be there? You know, there probably are. I mean, of all the people that I would have thought might still have documents they shouldn't, frankly, honestly, Mike Pence was pretty far down on the list. Not because of any reason other than he didn't really seem to be a vice president who did much um, beyond a few memos having to do with COVID. Remember when he was put in charge of COVID, but not really? I mean, you would think that he wouldn't even have documents. I'm sorry, but come on. I mean, he makes Kamala Harris you know, look like Thomas Jefferson. Let's go back to the phone lines. David is calling in from San Francisco. Hello, David. Hi, uh, Joan. Uh, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Uh, don't, don't forget Pence was in, in charge of Space Schwartz. And uh, Space Schwartz is uh, a very important uh, aspect. And, I, you know, in outer space, there are a lot of places to hide. But um, Oh, do you think some of the documents maybe are, are were, went up in orbit with the Space Force? Who knows? Who knows? Uh-huh. What I was going to come up with, and this is uh, not really funny, but more like a legitimate way for the American public to find the measure of these documents uh, and to measure Trump's uh, against Biden's. Now, say, for example, there are these low-level classified documents. They may have to do with diplomacy or they may have to do with trade secrets. You could put them in a category of, uh, you know, fine uh, the president $1,500 for each document that's at at a low level. Then you've got uh, more like um, less than top secret, but higher security. Uh, You'd charge uh, $5,000 a document. Uh, Then you get into uh, top secret, you'd maybe go to $50,000 a document. Then you go to the highest security, uh, skiff room only kind of documents, and those would be uh, half a million dollars a document. Well, 
Now, they're never going to tell us what were in these documents, but at least we would have those categories. And then if they were in a, in a financial, in terms of financial number, uh, a sort of a rating, just lay out so far Biden's, uh, Biden's fine level would be up to X and Trump's would be at X as well. So uh, it'd be a way of... Uh, at, at least giving a measure of uh, the well, value. at least if there were definitely fines in place for that kind of thing, maybe there would be just a little bit more more motivation to be careful. Like I said, I think a lot of this. I mean, I really don't believe that uh, Donald Trump is a criminal mastermind. I think that um, he wanted souvenirs more than anything. Um, and if there was something in there that he could share or delight the Saudis with, all the better. All the better. But I really do think most of this. I mean, I don't think Mike Pence is doing this on purpose. I don't think Joe Biden did it on purpose. I think it's just such an overwhelming number of documents and things. People are not as careful as they should be. And you make a good point, David. Maybe something that they should consider if they knew that there were serious fines for each and every one of these documents, then it would make more sense for them to actually pay one of their full time aides or even full time lawyers to sit there and go through everything page by page. Um, we need to take a break. But, David, thank you. Thank you for the call. It's actually a very good idea. We're going to um, talk politics when we come right back um, after this. Take Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. There's new information. Explosive new information. It's how every day starts. The need for information. Get the info you need from Santita Jackson. Weekday morning starting at 6 on WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. With all forms of hate speech and hate crimes, we have seen an ever spiraling up tick in the numbers of these harassment, um, graffiti, and worse as it's as of yet unclear whether some of the most recent mass shootings were workplace uh, disputes or whether they were Asian-American attacks. But anti-Semitism is absolutely on the rise, not just in this country, but frankly, around the world. Um, The Chicago-based Spurtist Institute is actually having a big presentation um, Monday, February 20th in the evening, where they're going to be talking about rising anti-Semitism. We asked Deborah Dash Moore to join us today. She's a renowned Jewish scholar. Uh, she's a professor of history and a professor of Judaic studies at the University of Michigan. Uh, she's the editor-in-chief of the Posen Library. And uh, she's written several books, including one titled G.I. Jews, How World War II Changed a Generation. Um, Professor Moore, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for the invitation to join you. It's a pleasure to be here. 
What do you attribute this rise in anti-Semitism that we are seeing, not just in this country, but globally? What do you attribute it to? So anti-Semitism is often like the canary in the coal mine. It appears when there are other disruptive um, conditions in the world. And as you know, of course, we've been through and and not quite over um, a major pandemic. Millions of people died um, in it, and it disrupted all kinds of social relations, economic relations, um, that people seek to find some kind of easy answer. And anti-Semitism offers potentially one of those, in quotes, as it were, easy answers, Um, whether you turn to conspiracy theories that blame Jews or you see Jews behind and manipulating things. um, It's a way of explaining what's wrong with the world. It's a way of explaining what's wrong with the world, though, that focuses all of the wrong on somebody who is other, other than me. And to me, it's also, I mean, to say that, you know, the pandemic, a global crisis, hell, the war in Ukraine, whatever it is that you're upset about. Well, I didn't do it. My people didn't do it. It must be all of those because there's this there's there's this myth that Jews are rich and powerful and they work behind the scenes And you can kind of see how uh, that kind of stereotype would really fit into the whole conspiracy theory mindset. Oh, yes, I I think you can. I even heard a change in your voice as you started to describe that. Uh, So it it, it is a, a, a way of explaining things that does draw upon the fact that it it identifies an other who's different. And the ideas of anti-Semitism, which have been around for many, many centuries, um, are there for people to draw upon who want to use them and see in their use and this is another piece of, of it, is see in the use of anti-Semitic um, ideas and actions um, a, a way to gain influence and power. And that we have seen certainly in terms of media dissemination of these um, ideas and how that ends up leading actually to violence, which we saw um, occurring in in uh, Pittsburgh, for example, and then um, subsequently in Poway, attacks on uh, Jewish synagogues. And we now have talking about how this becomes more accepted. You know, the more often it's talked about and publicized, we now have a woman on the Homeland Security Committee in Congress who, at one point in her career, um, said that there were Jewish space lasers. Yeah. Jewish, I mean, yeah. and she is now, she's sort of, she is trying to renounce some of her 
more bat poop crazy statements from before. But she said that. She said that, and at the time she said it, she certainly seemed to be all in on the idea. And she is now on the Homeland Security Committee. I think this means that the world as we know it is ending. Oh, gosh. Um, Maybe. Um, I think that there are some elements of this that hark back to earlier times. Um, If you look back at the Congress in the 1940s and 50s, you will find congressmen and senators um, who – you know, talk about uh, Jews in disparaging ways, uh, consider them all to be communists um, and troublemakers. So, no, it's not quite the same thing as uh, lasers that, that set fires. But there is there is some, we might say, unfortunate precedence for uh, people getting elected to the U.S. Congress who hold really reprehensible ideas. Okay. Well, what can someone like you who has studied this in depth, what can you tell me and my listeners about how to push back against this? I mean, I don't go to a lot of events where somebody looks me in the face and says something wildly anti-Semitic. It just feels like it's, it's sort of like in the ether around us. What do what do the people who don't buy into this, how do we help push it back? That's a great question. Um, And I think that it means that people who don't buy into this, as you said, need to speak out and need to call people to account who do make these kinds of statements. Um, It's not comfortable. To do that um, uh, in a face-to-face uh, fashion, but in fact, it's really important. I think you know you have to recognize that most Americans have rarely met a Jewish person because of how the population is distributed. And in places like Chicago, where there certainly are a large and flourishing Jewish uh, culture and society, um, there are opportunities for people to meet actual Jews and to come to recognize what they're really like. Um, And I think that's very important. It doesn't reach everybody, of course, but it does um, help to get rid of misconceptions um, and to explain to people why what they're saying um, is, in fact, Mm -hmm. anti-Semitic. I have a question. This may be kind of uh, small potatoes here, but a lot of people were talking about how, you know, the... um, the um, man who is a complete and total fake in Congress, George Santos or Anthony DeVolder or whoever the heck he is, um, he started uh, a fundraising thing and he, um, he he made up a name that in his mind sounded Jewish. And he told one of his friends, um, Jewish people will give more money if they think they're giving it to a Jewish person. And 
aside from the fact that that's just a really stupid thing to say, people were saying, well, that's anti-Semitic. Is a statement like that anti-Semitic? And if so, why? So is that statement anti-Semitic in the sense that, yes, it assumes that Jews favor other Jews um, and that he's therefore going to be able to tap into that sense of uh, Jewish solidarity. The truth is that Jews are generous in their um, money that they donate to a lot of different kinds of causes, and that if you're thinking about politics, Jews don't necessarily vote for other Jews. They vote for people who represent the values and ideas that they care about, who support uh, political positions that they're in favor of. So it's a real misconception to think that Jews are only interested in supporting Jews. That that's that is something that um, shades into anti-Semitism because it's not true. There's so much that I want to talk to you about, and I and I want you to also um, share with us some of the lessons from your book. But um, we need to take a break. So rather than getting started on a new topic and having to interrupt ourselves, let's take a break now. I'm speaking with Professor Deborah Dash Moore. Uh, she's a professor of history and a professor of Judaic studies at the University of Michigan. We're having a discussion about anti-Semitism. We'll be back with more after this. You're listening to WCPT 820 because facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Professor Deborah Dash Moore. She's editor-in-chief of the Posen Library of Jewish Culture and Civilization. We are talking about anti-Semitism. And the Anti-Defamation League tabulated 2,717 anti-Semitic incidents in the United States in 2021, the ones that were reported. But that number is a 34% increase from 2020, and it's the highest number since the Anti-Defamation League began tracking these in 1979. Anti-Semitism is on the rise, not only in this country, but really around the world. And um, Professor Moore, one of the one of the many books she's written was called G.I. Jews, How World War II Changed a Generation. Dr. Moore, talk a little bit about your book and what you wanted people to come away with from that. So the book on G.I. Jews was written in part, it came out around 15 years ago, in part for the G.I.s um, and their families for them to come to recognize what their fathers, for the most part, had experienced, um, or in the case of younger people, what their grandfathers had experienced, uh, because this had been completely forgotten. Um, When we think about World War II, we thought only about uh, the Holocaust, which is, you know, Holocaust is, is extremely important, and Holocaust Remembrance Day is this Friday. But we also thought about, if we thought about the United States, we thought about um, American soldiers 
fighting against um, the the Axis, uh, Nazi Germany and uh, the Japanese and Italians. And the experiences of Jewish GIs was uh, just covered over. So the, the book recalled those experiences, brought them to life. And since we've been talking about anti-Semitism, one of the things that these GIs discovered and fought against in the American military was the anti-Semitism of their fellow soldiers. Um, it was not easy to win their fellow soldiers' respect um, as Jewish soldiers and to let them come to understand just who Jews were. Uh, the the subtitle of the book is, is How It Changed a Generation. It did change these men, and they came back to the U.S. convinced that they had to change the United States and to lower the amount of anti-Semitism that was pervasive at the time in the United States. So when you say the, that now, they came back yeah. and felt a need to try to work on this problem in our country, are you talking about just the regular rank and file? I'm talking about the regular rank and file. That's correct. In other words, they, they came back and there were hotels that wouldn't accept Jewish, um, uh, you know, uh, people who, who wanted to, to uh, stay there. And they, they put on their uniforms and they'd walk into the hotel and they'd say, hey, you know, I fought. I fought for this country. Why are you excluding me? Right? Um, and, you know, they, they also they brought court cases and they they lobbied, but there was a lot of grassroots um, activism that they did in order to change the culture. We don't really remember what it was like in the 1950s, understandably. And, uh, you know, but they, they made a, a big impact. You know, um, Martin Luther King famously said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And I do believe that. But I, it also seems to me that we take two or three steps forward and then we take one or two steps back. Is that, is, is that just people? Is that just people being people? Is that just how things, um, are, you know, gonna get better very slowly but surely, but with backtracking, backsliding? I I do think that backsliding happens, and I think in part because new generations have different experiences and don't necessarily prioritize the same things um, as their elders. Uh, they take things for granted, and some things are too precious to take for granted. And the absence of anti-Semitism that characterized a good deal of the United States in, you know, the years prior to um, 2010, let's say, um, is something that uh, people took for granted. And now they have to recognize that uh, it's not to be taken for granted and it needs, in fact, to be fought actively. Um, they have to be concerned themselves as ordinary ordinary folk, and not just leave it to the organizations. How do you assess, whether it's just the United States or this situation globally, do you think it's getting better? Do you think it's getting worse? Will it get worse before it gets better? <laughs> 
So I think it's complicated. All right. I mean, I'm sure you expected that from an, uh, <laughs> an academic, right? It's complicated. So I, I had mentioned before how a lot of people don't know um, Jews, but the ones who do know them, many of them, have come to like Jews. Um, there's a rate of intermarriage in this country that's really quite high. And usually, you know, when people marry each other, it's because they like each other. <laughs> so um, you have to hold that in one hand um, at the same time as you hold all those people who hate um, and who are anti-Semitic and um, uh, want to push Jews out of out of this country. And I, it's in other words, it's a complicated picture. Um, and it's not one that I, I could step back from and say, don't worry, it's going to get better, because I don't think that's true. Um, I think if these experiences mobilize people um, to try to, to change um, the the attitudes and the the politics of some of their um, distant neighbors, then yeah, things could return to the way they were back in the nineties, for example. So I guess that is more positive than not. I I mean I do think that over time things do slowly get better, but. It is. It's. Is it human nature? What is the motivation for people when maybe their lives didn't turn out the way they wanted, or they didn't get a job, or they didn't end up, you know, making as much money as they thought they would? You know, I mean, it's happened to some degree to all of us, but most of us don't need to blame that on. Oh, you know, if only I had been black, I would have. You know, I would have gotten promoted because you know. No, that's who that gets promoted now. Um, I don't understand that vilifying of the other. To me, it's it's a way of shirking personal responsibility. Instead of saying, what could I have done differently to get this job? It's like, well, of course they were going to hire her. She's whatever minority or whatever flavor of the day is being looked at. It seems like it's a personal failing when somebody expresses that kind of idea. Am I overthinking this? No, I don't think so. But I, I, I no, I think, in other words, you're not overthinking it. I, I think that um, there have been real shifts. Um, and, you know, we're at the moment, we're two women talking to each other. And certainly uh, this represents something relatively new. Uh, I'm a historian, so I look back at the 20th century and I'm aware that opportunities for women have expanded enormously, but that it didn't just happen. And that when women do gain opportunities because they fought very hard for them, um, it means that some other people don't have as many opportunities. So there is this um, loss of relative power on the part of some men um, that has to make room for others. And the, the unwillingness to share power, the unwillingness to say, you know, we've got a better world when we 
share power where there's more equality rather than less equality. So what do you do or what do you say when you come up against this mindset that seems to be more pervasive than ever before that, well, you know, the, you know, the United States, it really should just be a white Christian nation. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I mean, what was it? Uh, General Flynn, like a year and a half ago said publicly, well, you know, we really only should have one religion in this country. What, what is the deal with this? If you're not a white Christian, you know, you're not an American. Mm -hmm. Well, basically, you say, in fact, that they're wrong. It should not be that way, because if you want a great United States, its its diversity is what has made it great, not the fact that it has been white and Christian. Um, it's the fact that it's had others there as well. But, you know, I mean, that's an argument that that you're going to make. And, yeah, what, the rise of white Christian nationalism um, is is very, very distressing, very distressing. I think I think that it's probably, you know, I obviously doing this show, we talk a lot of politics. It is one of the most distressing developments, I think, that I've seen in my adult lifetime. And whether or not it is clearly connected, it certainly feeds into the white terrorism that we see when these usually young almost always males, you know, show up somewhere with a gun to get rid of these mm -hmm. people who are somehow offensive to him because they are not the white Christians that he feels should populate the world. It really terrifies me. Yes, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. It terrifies me as well, as does the uh, broad availability of guns in this country. Yes, hopefully Hopefully that's, uh, you know, here in Illinois, we've tried to deal with that situation by passing um, some um, magazine limitations, some ammo limitations and assault weapons bans currently being challenged in the courts. But I believe it, it will survive and maybe be a model for other states since we seem to not have the political will to do this at the federal level. But as I'm sure you've 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 seen, I mean, it's like. <laughs> We've had more mass shootings. I think 70 people have died just since January started. I mean, yeah, I know. it and seems to me we're at a breaking point here. Something's got to give. Yeah, yes, I, I, I agree with you. Um, and I hope I hope that what you passed in, in Illinois does survive the challenge and becomes a model. We could use it in Michigan. Well, Michigan's lucky to have you, and I hope you will um, be a part of our show from time to time when, sadly, these issues re rear their heads, particularly in the political arena. Uh, thank you for being here, Professor Moore. Well, thanks again. It was really uh, stimulating to talk. Take thank care. you. Uh, Professor Deborah Dash Moore is a Jewish scholar, professor of history and Judaic studies at the University of Michigan. We are going to take a break. And uh, when we come back, we're going to focus on some local politics right after this. Remember when you get to work to hop over to WCPT820.com or the TuneIn Radio app and stream The Stephanie Miller Show weekdays 8 to 11 a.m. on Chicago's Progressive Talk, where facts matter. 
Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. I'm telling you, CPT 820. There is an election... I know. You probably want to beat your head against the wall. You've heard me say this so many times, but it is true. There's an election coming up February 28th. Uh, Depending upon where you live, you could be going to the polls. Lake County is going to be seeing some uh, ballots turned in that day, as is the city of Chicago. Of course, there's a race uh, for the next mayor. Nine contenders who will be at our forum this Thursday If you can't make it downtown, I do hope you can give us a listen. Uh, Remember, we're on the TuneIn Radio app. You can listen on your computer. Oftentimes, the audio is really good. And uh, if you're in your car, of course, listen on your radio. And what I've discovered, because, you know, the brand new cars, they they no longer have AM radios. Did you hear about that? My car's a 2020, and it doesn't have AM radio, but I can listen to CPT because I just connect my phone to the car via Bluetooth. So there's lots of different ways to hear us. And if you are thinking to yourself, man, I wish I'd snagged some of those tickets. I'm going to be downtown Thursday at noon. I would love to see these people in person. You are in luck. Andy Miles is sitting back at the studio, and he's really bored. So we are going to ask him to start answering the phones, because if you are the third, I don't know exactly how many pairs of tickets we have left. I know we're getting down there. Let's say if you're the third and fourth caller, third and fourth caller, you can snag a pair of tickets. Now, remember, this is to show up live in person downtown Thursday at the Morningstar Auditorium, 22 West Washington, right across from Daly Plaza. Um, and we are going to serve you a nice lunch at 11 a.m. Then we get going at noon. Me, Santita Jackson, Patty Vasquez, every candidate that wants to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. Oh, I didn't give out the phone number. Well, you probably have it memorized by now. But in case you don't and you want those tickets, 773-763-9278. If you've never called in before, here's an easy way to remember it. 773-763-WCPT. Just, you know, hit the letters on your phone. And um, you can get a couple of tickets to come to the auditorium. Please come over and say hello. Uh, That would be delightful. Um, Our forum, we want to really thank our sponsors, Morningstar, Roofers Local 11, and Oscar Iberian Rugs. And here's um, some of the boilerplate I have to tell you. Our contests are open to you as long as you're 18 years old. Um, you live, to live in the greater Chicagoland, northwest Indiana area. You have to only enter once, one winner in each household, void where prohibited by law. You can only win or qualify to win once every 30 days If you want all of the fine print, go to our website, WCPTA20.com, and click on the contest tab. Well, it isn't just going to be um, Chicago's next mayor we're going to be electing. There are going to be at least 15 aldermanic races for you to vote on. Lots of people are trying to move to other office, like Sophia King. Some of them are retiring. 
Um, some of them have um, run for other offices and been elected. So in the 48th Ward, Harry Osterman is retiring. And one of the people who is going to be on your ballot to replace Mr. Osterman is Nick Ward, who joins us now. Nick, thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Really exciting. Um, tell me about the 48th Ward. What what area does that encompass and who lives there demographically? So the 48th Ward runs along Chicago's lakefront. The southern boundary uh, on the lakefront side, the east side, is Ainsley. Um, the northern boundary is Devon, so kind of that Loyola University area. And then to the west, it's Clark Street that slices down to Foster and then slices over to Broadway where it meets up with Ainsley. So the community itself is one of the most socioeconomically, uh, culturally, and racially diverse communities in Chicago, or wards, I should say, in Chicago. There's um, a lot of, uh, like, a really prominent Asian community, specifically Vietnamese and Chinese people. Um, There's also uh, a lot of African immigrants, as well as, uh, Latino people, um, as well as a you know a a um, you know large Caucasian population. Now, tell me about yourself. You're um, one of a pretty crowded field. Last time I looked, there were ten people running to be the next alder for the 48th ward. Yes, ten people is correct. Um, I am a community organizer. I'm a renter. I am an artist. I worked in restaurants for 20 years. And I am originally from Michigan. My parents were unionized public school teachers. And I moved to Chicago in 2004 to pursue a life in theater and the arts and work in restaurants. And I have, uh, I've worked many jobs in the restaurant industry. And for the last four years, I I spent working at an organization called Young Chicago Authors. And tell me about that. So Young Chicago Authors, or or YCA, as we call it, is a 30-year-old arts organization that teaches spoken word and hip-hop poetics to Chicago public schools students and other students around the Chicagoland. And so... How does working as an arts administrator and an, and an artist, how does that prepare you for the down and dirty of public life? <laughs> yeah, well, um, you know, first of all, arts work can be down and dirty itself. You know, a lot of the, the work that I did was producing events and you know, that really involved bringing people together around a shared project, you know, and making sure that all of the, dis- the disparate pieces of our production were, were working together. Um, and then my, my job at YCA, I really saw in real time the, the way in which we need to invest in young people. You know, I had colleagues and students tell me on occasions how much, you know, having a safe space to go write poems saved their life. So that led me to really understand that if we invest in in more poetry, in arts, in athletics or robotics or chess programs or or whatever, you know, that can really have a profound effect on the life of young people in the city. I know that one of the things that you support 
is um, tenants' rights, particularly the Just Cause Ordinance. What is that? So the Just Cause Ordinance is something that would strengthen tenant protections here in Chicago. And essentially what it would do was it would seek to limit what we call no-fault evictions. And so those are evictions that are, um, you know, what happens when, when people are asked to leave through no fault of their own. So I'll give you an example. Um, in my neighborhood in Uptown, I'm on the local school council at Gowdy Elementary School, and the school has faced a really significant enrollment decline in the last eight years, um, double the rate of CPS as a whole. And in one instance, uh, a building that was actually three large apartment buildings was purchased by a developer and then redeveloped into uh, what they call luxury studios and one-bedroom apartments. And almost 100 Gaudi students had le- left the, the school district as a result. Mm. Well, if just cause had been in place, you know, we could have better prevented that displacement. Or at the very least, have those families would have had to have been provided relocation funds that perhaps meant they would have been able to stay in this community. And that's one thing that Just Cause really seeks to do is just make sure that we're protecting against greater displacement. Um, We are speaking with Nick Ward. Nick is uh, going to be on your ballot if you are going to be living in the 48th Ward and voting for a new older person there. Harry Osterman is retiring. We are going to take a real quick break and continue to talk with Nick right after this. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. Not just Joan Esposito, but Joan Esposito and Nick Ward, candidate for the 48th Ward Alder seat uh, that will be on the ballot February 28th. Harry Osterman is retiring. Uh, Nick is one of the people, one of the 10 people who have decided that that's a job they might want. We were just talking with Nick uh, about uh, some of the tenants' rights um, positions and organizations and ordinances that he is in support of. Nick, what other areas are you passionate about? Well, I'm really passionate about workers' workers' rights. You know, my parents, as I mentioned before, were unionized public school teachers. And I saw that their union membership is what gave us a right to a comfortable and dignified life, which is something that I believe everyone deserves. And so here in the 48th Ward, we've had some, some exciting, but also really challenging unionization efforts in the last couple of months. So we, we had three Stores in Edgewater um, of Starbucks employees who formed into unions. And so I've been supportive of them since the moment that they won their union election. Now, unfortunately, one of the stores actually closed the week before they were set to begin bargaining with Starbucks. And I believe that was a, a tactic to, to greater you know, try to leverage union busting tactics to disrupt the union. So I've been really supportive of the Starbucks workers. I've also been really supportive of the Howard Brown health workers. They announced their union uh, last year, early last year, 
Um, and this is a, a union made up of queer and transgender workers who are fighting to make sure that they have the right to a dignified life and that their patients have the right to a dignified life. And so what we saw recently was Howard Brown actually commit to some uh, unjust firings of some of those workers right at the, at the beginning of the new year. And so I joined the Howard Brown health workers on the picket line for three straight days, just a couple of weeks ago, because I really believe that the, the queer and transgender workers are critical to standing up to attacks against queer and transgender people. So I really believe that, that labor unions and, you know, more worker power is, I'm very passionate about that. If you had to put a label on your politics, what label would you pick? I would say I'm a leftist. Yeah, I mean, I really believe in supporting workers and organized labor. I'm really uh, invested in community service and community organizing. And I want to make sure that I'm expanding, you know, greater affordability for families here, supporting our public schools and youth programs, like I mentioned before, and making sure that we have better public infrastructure for more walkable, bikeable and accessible streets. One of the positions uh, that I know you have taken is uh, support. You're in favor of using city resources to shovel sidewalks and bus stops. And a lot of people um, think that that's over the top. But I have to tell you, a few years ago uh, when I um, I moved to the northern suburbs, put my kids in public school up here, and I happened to move to a community where they have these little skid steers <clears throat> and they plow the sidewalks. And when I <clears throat> first moved up here from the city and they plowed my sidewalks, I thought I had died and gone to heaven um, because... It is really hard, especially if you've got little kids, especially if you've got a full-time job. It is hard you to actually get out there and 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 do that. And if you can't get to it, I we you know back when I worked in television, you know, I had a service that would help and then uh, that company went out of business and I couldn't uh, find anybody else and you know, it was like I, my sidewalks almost never got shoveled because there just weren't enough hours in the, in the day. I wasn't going to go out there after dark. And if you've never lived in a town where your streets and sand people not only plow the road, but also plow the sidewalks, you can't imagine how wonderful it is. And, you know, because, it, you know, me, I was busy working a lot of hours at a job. Some people are elderly and they can't do it. Some people are sick and they can't do it. And not having plowed sidewalks is really dangerous. I think that's a wonderful idea. Thank you so much for saying that. I'm, I'm really grateful to hear that you're in support of that. I, I really believe that sidewalks, just like the roads, are public spaces. So if we clear and clean our roads, we should ensure the same level of service and access for our sidewalks. And just like you said... The current approach in Chicago leaves a lot of people behind. It leaves seniors behind. It leaves people with disabilities, families with strollers and young children. Um, But also it leaves commuters behind who deserve access to the public way following snowstorms. I can't tell you how many times I've seen a bus stop that wasn't cleared 
and someone struggle to access the bus stop, which which prohibits their ability to access public transportation, as is their right of living in the city. Yeah, I mean, for those people who've never I mean, I had lived my whole life in the city, so I never really thought twice about it. But I'm telling you, um, you know, whether you know, whether you just don't get out and and, it, and also too, it t- gets the gets them shoveled on it in a timely manner. Like, you know, if you're working a lot of hours, you could say, well, you know, I'll get to it on Saturday, on Saturday when I have time to do these things. And but the people who are, like you said, disabled, the people who are elderly, the people who are too ill, um, those sidewalks are never going to get shoveled. And it doesn't matter if you shame those people or find those people. It just it just isn't going to happen. What are some of the other things that you support that you'd like to tell our listeners about? Well, I really would love to talk about bring Chicago home. That's something that's that's near to to my heart. And I know that it's it's something that a lot of other people across the city are supporting. So Bring Chicago Home is an ordinance that would restructure the real estate transfer tax to provide a dedicated revenue stream to address our homelessness crisis. And so what it would do was it would seek to to provide uh, permanent supportive housing for our homeless neighbors, but it would also include other wraparound social support services, you know, so making sure that um, mental health services are available, uh, harm reduction related to drug addiction is available, domestic violence, violence prevention is available. And so Bring Chicago Home is something that a number of older people around the city support. And I look forward, if I'm elected, to adding my name to that support and making sure that we're getting our homeless neighbors the resources that they need to thrive too. That is the ordinance for those of you who are thinking of yourself right now. That rings a bell. That was an ordinance um, that almost got a committee vote in the Chicago City Council. Um, Maria Haddon, an older person, was a big supporter of that. But all of a sudden, when it came time to take that vote to move it to the next spot in its lifespan to becoming an actual program, Suddenly, a bunch of older people went out into the hallway and suddenly there was no longer a quorum. They were one older person short of being able to take the vote and nothing happened. And while nobody is claiming responsibility, the belief is, you know, when she first became mayor, uh, Lori Lightfoot talked about raising the real estate transfer tax, not necessarily for homeless uh, construction, but to raise revenue and the business community pushed back and pushed back hard uh, as she dropped the idea. And um, that's basically where the funding from this program would come from, re- raising the real estate transfer tax on those people who buy, you know, million dollar, multimillion dollar homes in the city of Chicago. So it is um, it is an ordinance that came really close um, in the last session, and maybe when we get 15 new older people seated, maybe it'll uh, have a second chance to get off the ground. Have you talked to any of the people who actually were like Maria Haddon, people who were spearheading this effort, Nick, and trying to get it um, a, to be a done deal? 
Well, I, I have spoken to Maria Haddon in the past, and she is the older woman who, um, if she is reelected and I am elected, she is, her ward is just due north of mine um, along the lakefront. And like mine, the, the 49th ward has a majority rental population um, as well as a, a sizable homeless population. Um, and so I know that Alderwoman Haddon is really committed to this ordinance. Um, prior to that vote that you referenced, um, or, or rather um, lack of vote that you referenced, she and Alderman Matt Martin, who is uh, directly to the west of the southern part of my ward, wrote uh, an op-ed, I believe, in the Chicago Tribune, um, you know, really calling on the city to, to pass this ordinance to make sure that we're addressing this crisis. And so I, I remain committed to working with them to help get this passed. Uh, Nick Ward, tell people who are listening where they can find out more about your positions and your candidacy to be the next older person for the 48th Ward. Well, Joan, I'm very grateful to have been here today. Your listeners can find me at nickward48.com. We also have an office that's right in the heart of the 48th Ward at 5454 North Broadway. Um, I like to say that if there are people in the office, it is open. Please come in. We, um, we often always have a pot of coffee. Uh, <laughs> so come in and get a cup of coffee. And, you know, we can talk about politics. We can talk about my vision for the ward. Um, I can answer any questions or my staff can answer any questions if they're, if they're there as well. Wonderful. Uh, Nick Ward running for Alderperson in the 48th Ward. Harry Osterman is retiring. He will be on the ballot February 28th if you live in that area of the city of Chicago. Nick, thanks for being here. Wish you a lot of luck in your campaign. And uh, stay in touch. I think it will be fun to follow your career. Thank you very much. Have a great rest of your day. We are going to take a break. You know, um, one of uh, uh, President Governor Pritzker's early failures was um, trying to get a graduated state income tax, which I don't think a lot of people understood um, that it would have made the wealthy people in the state of Illinois pay more tax. Be that as it may, it went down to defeat. Governor Pritzker isn't all that keen about resurrecting it, but there are a couple of people in the state legislature who think it is an idea whose time has come. We're going to talk to one of them right after this. Facebook. Message us. Instagram. Follow us. Twitter. Tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. Tune into the Tom Hartman radio program, your home for news, opinion, and insight, right here on WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. There is talk that um, a change to the state income tax might be something that uh, is going to arise in this next legislative session in Springfield. Will Guzardi, who's a Democrat from Chicago, is introducing a proposal where anybody with a net worth of a billion dollars or more. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's me, you know. 
Uh, if you have a net worth of a billion dollars or more, you'd have to pay 4.95 percent of it off the top to the state every year. Um, another lawmaker who we are about to speak with, Senator Robert Martwick, said that, you know, that idea we had for the graduated income tax, again, an effort to get wealthier people to pay their fair share, that it might be a good time uh, to bring it back, maybe tweak it. But, you know, why would you why would you not bring back something that has the potential to do so much good for the state and the people of Illinois? Well, uh, State Senator Robert Martwick joins us now to talk about those efforts and other things. Uh, Rob, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you today. So uh, tell me about what it is you're thinking of doing. So um, the the reality of it is, is that, um, you know, I've, I've been asked a lot of questions. Why revive this after it failed at a referendum? And, and the answer is simple, is that the motivating factors behind the initial proposal that failed uh, still exists. And those are basically that in Illinois, if you make seventy five to $150,000 a year, you have the highest overall tax burden in the country, number one. Um, so our middle class is overtaxed, and every time Illinois has had financial problems, we raise taxes and fees on the middle class, and then we cut services that middle class folks need to get ahead in this world. We have under terribly under-resourced K-12 education, so your kids have challenges uh, keeping up with kids in neighboring states, K-12. And if, if they survive that, then when they go to school, they say, well, I'll go to an Illinois public state university, and they find out that tuition is one of the highest tuitions in the country, making it that much more unaffordable and inaccessible. So we're taking away things that people need to get ahead, and we're creating too high of a tax burden on them. On top of that, the state continues down a path where we have a massive structural deficit that may be as much as $250 billion short of what we need, which means that if we don't do something about it now, then ultimately the next generation, my kids, will be faced with the same sort of raise taxes on the middle class and cut more services Mm -hmm. from the middle class. And it, it makes no sense. And so this is a way of reviving the discussion um, and hopefully trying to fine-tune the mistakes we made in the past when we did this so that we can put the state on better financial footing and give the middle class, the hardworking people that drive our economy, give them some much-needed tax relief. I know that um, the very wealthy folks got together and uh, spent a bunch of money to create an ad campaign to defeat the effort to put in place the graduated income tax um, that Governor Pritzker sponsored. Why do you think they were so successful? Well, I I think that what they did was, and, and let's talk about, before we talk about why they were successful, let's talk about what that success meant. You had middle class, hardworking people who went to the polls, and voted to pay more taxes. I know. I tried to talk about this on the air, and I was like, uh, I was like, don't you understand? And when I saw, and I thought, I actually wasn't too worried about it, because I thought, 
This it was a no brainer. I was stunned when it went down to defeat. That's right. And and the 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 people who spent to defeat this, what they did was they they hit on one of the core values. And to their credit, I'll say it was very smart. They said, Don't trust the government. And so people walked in and said, I would rather pay more than trust the government. And I've been asked about this and I say, you know what? That's not such a bad thing. It's bad that people have to pay more than they should. Um, It's bad that middle-class people, especially now post-lockdown, they're feeling, you know, their their wages are flat, their taxes are high, and now they're feeling the squeeze of inflation. They really could use that relief right now. But I think that that's important. We really shouldn't trust our government. That's not a a conservative or a liberal thing. I think in in a citizen democracy, we should be skeptical of our government. And so... As I craft this next attempt at creating a better, more modern tax system that will better grow over time and help ward off these financial problems that will give the middle class tax relief, I think we have to be very cognizant that whatever we do, that additional revenues raised have to be dedicated to solving problems. There cannot be wiggle room. We have to give the people trust. I, don't, I, I told someone today, I said, you, it doesn't matter whether you trust me or not. I don't think I'll be here that much longer, you know, in the grand scheme of things. It's, it's, it's about trusting the institution of government to solve the problems. And in Illinois, Democrat or Republican is irrelevant. We don't, as a government, as a nonpartisan or bipartisan government, we don't have a good record of solving those problems. And so this effort will include Whatever we do in terms of solving those problems, we will identify a problem and we will show how the revenue will be dedicated to solving that. And I hope that that will give people the faith that they need um, or rather let them know that they don't need faith, that the legislation will do what it's intended to do and solve problems so that the state will be in a better position for them and for their the next generation. Is Are those what you just described, is that how you're going to tweak this legislation and or how you are going to try to sell it to people as well? Well, without a doubt, um, you know, the, the, uh, the, I think the major difference, and again, um, we are not, you know, this is just in formulation. Uh, This will be filed. There will be legislation filed. Um, There will be, um, but this is intended to be part of a broader discussion. This is, we're not reviving the governor's initiative, which is called the fair tax. This will not be that. Um, And, you know, we're going to look at different options. We're going to identify problems and we're going to say, where can we dedicate revenues that are raised above and beyond the flat tax to show people that we are attacking the problems that everyone agrees are a problem. What is that? Well, I think we can have a broad discussion because Illinois has no shortage of them. We underfund (laughs) our education. We underfund higher education in K through 12. We overtax the middle class. We've got exceptionally high property taxes, which are regressive in the sense that the less you make, the greater of the greater portion of your income that you spend on housing. So high property taxes disproportionately affect working class, middle class and poor. So we need to, you know, but so all of those problems are, we have an excessive amount of pension debt and that pension debt 
whatever you think of, of pension debt, it crowds out our ability to spend on those other things that we think are so important. Social services, Medicaid, right? Uh, Medicaid is one of the big ones. Illinois is a, a, an outlier in terms of what we spend on Medicaid, and Medicaid is essential to long-term care for the middle class. That's what middle class people rely on when they you know, they live past their resources, they go into long-term care, they need that Medicaid, and we're constantly underspending and yet looking for more ways to cut on Medicaid funding. So if we can figure out what those problems are and prioritize them, I think the key there is then to dedicate this money to know that they're going to solve those problems. And I think that that will give people um, the assurances, not the faith, the assurances they need to say, yes, this is the right thing to do moving forward. Well, I know one of the leaders of, um, opposing the governor's fair tax, somebody who spent millions and millions, was Ken Griffin, who uh, hopefully now that he's in Florida will, uh, you know, annoy Governor DeSantis instead of us. But it was, I remember also reading um, that Penny Pritzker also joined with Ken Griffin in funding the media effort to I thought just confuse people over what the fair tax actually was so it would not be put in place with Ken Griffin gone and hopefully uh, maybe a better relationship between J.B. Pritzker and his cousin Penny. Do you think that this could really happen this year? Um, you know, I, I don't know. I think that any initiative this big, um, it, it takes effort. And and so I think that's my point. I would, Joan, I would say that I never thought it was going to take four general assemblies, seven years to pass an elected representative school board for the Chicago public schools. Mm -hmm. When I started carrying that legislation, I said, this is a no brainer. 90% of the people want this. Let's just put it on the board and pass it. It took four general assemblies, seven years to get that bill across the finish line. And my thing is this, if it's, it, we know we've got these problems. We know we're on a path to a financial catastrophe. We know the middle class is overtaxed. We know we underfund so many things in our government that cause people suffering. We know those problems. We need to start. We need to continue to talk about solutions just because the governor's effort at, uh, 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 of the, at this tax uh, restructuring failed. Those problems didn't go away. We have to keep talking about it. Um, I think it would be a big initiative to get done this year. I will push like crazy. But again, don't ask me to predict because I would have told you that the elected school board was going to pass in the first years. I didn't think it would take seven. Um, but I didn't give up on that one. I'm not going to give up on this one because I believe it's the right thing. And as I've said to people who are naysayers, I've said, look, I just told you what the problems are and what it will do. And, and I'm look, I'm an older dad, Joan. I'm, I'm 56 years old and I have a six-year-old and a three-year-old. And God bless you. <laughs> well, it's it's the best thing I ever did in my life. I got to tell you, I was late to the game on having kids, but it's the best thing. But it helps give you perspective. Um, I saw the generation before me in government very irresponsibly put us into this position. And my 10 years in the General Assembly have been trying to find ways out of these problems. Under no circumstances will I sit quietly while we head on a path to leaving devastation for my children. And so to those who are naysayers, I say, those problems are undeniable. Here's my solution. What's yours? Because if you don't have one, hurry up and come up with one. And if you don't come up with one, 
and you won't accept mine, then what you're saying is you'd rather let my kids deal with that problem and your kids or your grandkids in the next generation. And I won't sit for that. I will, I will continue to fight and I will continue to work. Can I get it passed this year? I think that would be a heavy lift and I'm a pretty optimistic guy, but I'm hoping over the course of these next two years that we can have enough time to talk to my colleagues, talk to the general public, and like the elected school board, build that grassroots movement where middle-class people and everyday average citizens go to their legislators and say, darn right, that's what we need. You better work mm. for it. Um, I'm speaking to State Senator Rob Martwick. We are going to take a break. Rob, when we come back, I want to talk to you more about the effort to get an elected school board in place, because I think that the difficulty and the length of time it took is it gives our listeners a real insight into some of the trials and tribulations of government and how it really works. We're going to be right back after this. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Returns right now on WCPT 820. I'm joined by State Senator Robert Martwick. He is going to resurrect some sort of an effort to try to make the state tax here in Illinois fairer, having the wealthy pay more and those who are on lower incomes pay less, which seems pretty fair to me. But we were talking about his efforts, his multi, multi-year effort to pass legislation to create an elected school board, something that ostensibly everybody supported, and yet it took a lot of time. Now, I we up, up here in the city of Chicago, from the reporting we read, we understood that, you know, when Lori Lightfoot was um, elected to office, even though she had said she um, supported an elected school board, she apparently was concerned that uh, the school board, as it was planned to be was too large. It would be unwieldy. It wouldn't work. She was kind of new to the job. She kind of asked for some time to get her ducks in a row. And um, my understanding is that that was that was honored. What were some of the other stumbling blocks that that surprised you that that made this a longer process than you expected? Well, I, I think the reality is is very similar to a change in our tax structure, which provides middle-class relief. Um, so the, pe- the same people who push back against the change in our tax structure also push back against an, an elected school board. Um, and I think the motivation was somewhat different. Um, but, uh, you know, I think there is um, a, if I'm, if I'm honest, I think that people who are very uh, financially successful, and I think it's important to put it that way because there are loads of ways to be successful, whether you're a great teacher or uh, uh, whatever your chosen profession is, um, you can be a great success without financial reward. Um, But the people who have become particularly financially successful in our world they were the people that opposed this um, and um, more behind the scenes. um, But it was pretty clear that they felt that um, it would be easier for them to exert control over our system of education, which let's be honest is the 
largest portion of your property tax bill. And if you include the spending that the federal government and the state government spends on education, in some it very well may be the largest portion of uh, you know money that your taxes are dedicated towards, right? Um, and so they didn't like the idea of citizen control over a large uh, unit of government like the Chicago Public Schools. And so, you know, that was always in the background. And um, with, you know, Mayor Emanuel um, in the beginning, uh, he pushed back really hard against an elected school board. He was not interested in talks. He was not interested in compromise. He preferred to just keep control of the schools. And, um, but over time, as I said, you know, there were, uh, I got a big help, even though it was the right thing to do, no matter what the circumstances were, the fact that the Chicago public schools continued to be plagued by scandals that, that were, you know, could really be tied to the fact that there was a lack of, of, of democracy, uh, and accountability, um, it really helped raise the awareness of everyday average people that, Hey, we needed citizen control. This is our government. We're supposed to be responsible for it. We're supposed to have a voice in the decision-making. And so that helped uh, move it along. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I would say Mayor Lightfoot was, um, uh, by the time she got there, it was, you know, unfortunate, um, I would say, for the process and for her, because, because she had spent so much time campaigning so aggressively on a fully elected school board when she came in and did a 180, and I believe there was one meeting where she said, when asked about it, she said, candidate Lightfoot supported an elected school board. Mayor Lightfoot does not. You know, there's, you, you lose credibility. And so she spent a lot of effort trying to defeat the elected school board when at that point the die had been cast. And yeah. It was really just sort of negotiating fine points. Um, she came in with this big effort to kill it or to substantially alter it. And it, it, it wasn't a good look for her because her efforts failed pretty miserably because at that point, like I said, the grassroots movement had grown so much that I had at that point when the mayor was going full on, I'm going to kill this bill, there were elected representatives and senators who came to me and said, they don't understand that there are people in my community that are ready to hold me accountable over this vote. And I'm, it, she, she doesn't get that, but that's the grassroots effort had built so much up that it wasn't legislators talking to their constituents. It was constituents telling their legislators, you better do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really had, it, there was no stopping it at that point. Um, I also would like to uh, continue to look forward to some of the other um, proposals that you are going to be working on coming up. Can you share some of that with us? Uh, sure. So the the efforts to create an elected school board are far from done. Um, now we have to do, we passed the legislation enabling it, but now the General Assembly has some very difficult work. We have to draw districts for the, the representative districts for these school board members to run out of. We have to decide in the first election in 24, half the board will be appointed and half will be elected. So we're going to have to come up with some process for determining that. Um, and then we have the issue that, again, has become sort of a push um, or a tool, I should say, in an effort to unring the bell. Um, so how do you stop the elected school board that's been passed into law? 
it has become the issue of what we call financial entanglements. Obviously, since the city of Chicago has always been directly tied to the operation of the Chicago Public Schools, there are some financial crossovers or entanglements. And we have to do the difficult work of figuring out how do we separate the finances of the Chicago Public Schools from the city of Chicago. And so there's going to be a lot of work this year spent on that effort. And of course, given that I spent seven years passing the underlying legislation, I expect to be intimately involved in those efforts and those discussions because I think they'll be critical to actually making the the elected school board happen. Um, um, Additionally, um, a lot of my work has been uh, involved around pensions, um, and pensions continue to be, as I mentioned before, sort of an albatross uh, for the state. (laughs) Yeah, really. Something everybody cares about and nobody wants to hear about. That's right. And we built up, an, a, 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 you know, we built, the, the reality of it is, is we've built up this massive debt. We have to find a way to pay it back um, responsibly. And, and so there are many efforts at, you know, there, I was talking to someone the other day and I mentioned pension reform and someone, they cringed immediately. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Pension reform does not mean stealing people's pensions. That's wrong. I said, that's what it got turned into. Um, But pension reform can be and should be about reforming all of the little uh, problems in our law that allowed us to get into this situation in the first place. Again, there's no way $140 billion will be paid off during my tenure. We don't have that money. That's uh, that's five years of of revenue for the state of Illinois. We don't have it, right? Um, But... Um, and, and I say that that would be if we didn't spend money on anything else, right? Imagine that. Um, mm-hmm. So there's no way it can get paid in my tenure. But what I can do is as we chart out a path to paying down this debt, I can make sure that the next generation, that there are safeguards put into place so the next generation doesn't wind up here again. Um, and and so, you know, I'm I'm always constantly looking at that. How do we calculate our payments? Um, what's the math that we use? Illinois still has, despite the fact that we're moving in the right direction, there's still a lot of wiggle room that would allow us to go in the wrong direction if we so chose. And even though that's not the case now, you never know what's going to happen in the future. And so I look at, I'm constantly looking at ways that we can ensure that pensioners get paid everything that they bargained for, that they were promised, and that they are owed. I believe in that. You make a promise, you live up to it. But we also need to look at ensuring that we don't get into the problem in the future. And then I think we have to have a real frank discussion about the fact that our overcorrection on pension benefits, our attempts to diminish future benefits for future employees, has led to some real problems. Um, How do you get a person to do a very difficult job. This is a real simple question. How do you get someone to do a job that's really difficult? You pay them, right? And if if, if they say, that's not enough, then if you really want that job done, you got to figure out what it is you need to pay them. I would argue that perhaps the two most difficult jobs in the public sector right now are being a teacher and being a police officer. And not surprisingly, those are the two areas where we have massive, even critical shortages across the state. Last year, there were as many as 4,000 unstaffed classrooms in the state of Illinois. 4,000. Imagine that, Joan. 4,000 classrooms of kids where they file in, sit down at the desk, and an adult at the front of the room says, look, 
I got to go. You're here for an hour by yourself. Just don't kill each other and closes the door and leaves. That's not acceptable. So we passed all of this stuff to allow retired teachers to return back to the room. But as we know, that's a stopgap measure. If someone said, I don't want to work anymore, how much longer are you going to keep them working? We need to increase the pipeline of teachers coming in. And I think a part of that has to be the discussion that we have so diminished the retirement benefits for our our most dedicated and uh, uh, public servants doing the toughest jobs that they say, why would I want to do the job for that? And so we have to look at, as we look forward and solving our pension debt, we have to look at it not just from a numbers perspective, although that's obviously critically important. We have to look at it from a public policy perspective. We need teachers. We need nurses. We need police officers and those tough jobs. We have to look at that overall compensation and how retirement benefits fit into that. You've got a lot on your plate. I'm so glad that there are people who want to dig into this and and get it done. Um, you know, I mean, I we talk we used to talk a little bit more about pensions, but I found that it's you know, if especially if you get a pension, it's something you really care about, but how they work and how they're funded and where the money comes from it's it's sometimes more than we mortal human beings can can manage. And I'm so glad, Rob, that you are there and that you're uh, looking into all this on our behalf. Thank you for that. Joan, thank you for that, that that, you know, it's it has been a, a singular honor and privilege to serve in this role. And um, the fact that you would say that gives me, uh, uh, you know, it renews my enthusiasm for looking for those problems and trying to solve some of them. Well, you are also now going to be my go-to guy. I'm going to call you every time there's a pension story, which I don't understand, which is every time there's a pension story, I don't understand it. So, thanks. You're on my speed dial now, buddy. All right. That sounds good. Thank you. Thank you. We are going to take a break for news. When we come back, we're going to. there's lots of stuff going on uh, with NATO and Ukraine. We're going to talk to our good friend, Professor Joel Ostro, after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. The Tom Hartman Radio Program provides all of the intelligence, information, and insight you'll need to win the water cooler wars. Weekdays 11 to 2, right here on WCPT 820. Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. There are a lot of developments just today in uh, NATO support for Ukraine. You know, a big stumbling block was tanks. President Ukrainian President Zelensky made it clear that he needed tanks. Uh, Germany's tanks, something called a Leopard 2, was considered not only the closest, but also the easiest for the Ukrainian um, Ukrainians to learn how to operate. It was felt that um, the American tanks were a little more complex and might be a little the Abrams might be a little bit more problematic. But Germany was reluctant uh, and seemed to be hesitating. So uh, today, President Biden said, well, you know what? That's what it takes. We'll send them the Abrams tanks. And then just this afternoon, Germany announced, oh, well, you know, those leopards, the leopard, too. Yeah. yeah, You know, I think we will send some over there. 
And to show you, this is just not a small point. This is a really big deal. I was looking, well, at the Washington Post opinion section, um, opinion by the editorial board about tanks the Germans were refusing to send, letters to the editor, don't lose the sight of the emotional impact of tanks in Ukraine, opinion piece by Max Boot, NATO more unified than ever, but what about those tanks? Uh, This has been a potential rift, maybe, in the solid support NATO has given Ukraine, but it also appears to be a rift that President Biden has healed. So, you know, whenever this stuff like this happens, we reach out to Professor Joel Ostro, who is with Benedictine University. He's an expert on Russia. We have been talking about this war in Ukraine. So I asked Professor Ostro to come and talk tanks with me today. Joel, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Joe. Oh, no. <laughs> Oh, he actually was. Oh, there. I will forgive you that. I will never forget it, but I will. I will forgive you that. So, <laughs> give us your insight here. What happened, and why was this so important? Yeah. So, uh, President Zelensky has been calling for NATO uh, to send tanks to Ukraine since the beginning of, of this war, nearly a year ago. Uh, and if you'll permit me, uh. Let's review. Russia invaded on February 24th of 2022 um, and swept deep into Ukraine, capturing large swaths of territory. Uh, And then that invasion stalled for a whole variety of reasons that we don't necessarily need to rehash here. Uh, The West uh, strongly responded and came to Ukraine's aid with uh, money, weapons, artillery of all sorts. Uh, and intelligence and, and advice and all sorts of uh, of logistical support, and Ukraine uh, began to push Russia back uh, and push Russia way back deep into the Donbass area uh, and liberated the rest of Ukraine. Russia has roughly doubled the amount of territory in eastern Ukraine compared to what it had before the incursion, but um, great success Ukraine had in, in pushing Russia back. And then around late autumn, um, and the methods that Ukraine used were what I've said uh, on your show many times, uh, whack-a-mole kind of strategies. Hit them in one area, draw the Russian troops, and then move to another area, recapture that land, draw the troops there, go back to another spot and recapture that area. And it was very, very effective. But since late autumn, and maybe it's partly because of weather, but I think it's also because of just the changing uh, strategic nature of things on the ground, uh, this turned into something of a war of attrition in the Donbass area, particularly around a large city of Bakhmut. Some smaller towns have been in the news, but but the significant uh, region is around Bakhmut. And that is significant because if Ukraine is able to recapture that, it sort of severs um, uh, Russia's land bridge to, Ukra- to Crimea, which it, it desperately uh, needs in order to really resupply both areas and, and, and maintain control. Uh, the United States uh, and really Germany and the rest of its allies in the beginning of the war refused to send tanks because um, for a whole host of reasons, uh, uh, they didn't seem to be appropriate given the nature of the battle at the beginning. And then some worries about uh, what, what, what might happen with the situation on the ground if they did have them. Uh, 
but that situation on the ground has changed. Uh, Ukraine has uh, a realistic possibility of of evicting Russia from much more of the territory it has captured. But B, uh, faces a real prospect. I think everyone agrees that Russia is building up towards uh, another ground assault, largely emanating from Belarus, but not exclusive. So the situation on the ground has changed. And then Russia has also dug deep trenches uh, with those dragon teeth reinforcements uh, to make it harder for Ukraine uh, to recapture any of that territory and repel Russia's uh, positions. So that's where the tanks come in. Uh, those, they're technically called the Leopard 2 tanks uh, that Poland has been pushing aggressively, uh, that it wants to send. Uh, Ukraine needs those if it's going to make any more uh, advance into the Donbass, and Ukraine desperately needs those uh, to repel uh, what is widely expected to be a tank-led assault uh, by Russia uh, Really, so, so the big thing is they want to be able to counter the weapon that they feel is going to be coming at them next. Correct. Okay. And strategically, they need these tanks if they're going to recapture any more of that territory. And now we've learned today that the U.S. seems as there aren't many reports. I, I don't know. I, I, I saw a CNN report, and, and I'd like to see this reported elsewhere. Um, but uh, apparently the U.S. is urging Ukraine to maybe not go back to that whack-a-mole strategy, but to relocate its attacks to the south and to try and, and break that land bridge further south rather than around Bakhmut. To do that, they 100% are going to need tanks. That advice must have come on the heels of a general agreement that, that those Leopard 2s are going to go. Tank squadrons come... Uh, in number in 14, at least uh, the West, you know, NATO and, and its allies. Tank squadrons, number 14 tanks. Poland, well, we have thousands of the Leopard 2s. Those are the core tank during the Cold War. Um, the Leopard 2s are the newer version, but but they are in wide, wide use. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds all across Europe. Uh, all, most NATO countries in Europe have uh, at least a couple of squadrons and some many, many more. Those are made in Germany, and so by agreement, by, by rule, uh, for one state to transfer uh, German-made tanks to another country, particularly a non-NATO member, which would be Ukraine, requires Germany's approval. For whatever reason, Germany has said, no, we're not, sent, we're not going to give that approval unless the United States sends tanks. It, it was, what was, I didn't really understand. I, sorry to interrupt here, but I, I don't want you to go any further without explaining to me. I didn't really understand what Germany's problem was, whether they felt somehow that they would antagonize Russia and be at some sort of risk themselves, whether they felt it was an escalation. What's your sense of you say they said they weren't going to send tanks unless the United yeah. States yeah. sent tanks. Is that yeah. a way of pre uh, protecting themselves against Russian retaliation? So the Germany conversation, if you will, is a, is a really important but a, a distinct set of issues from the tanks. Um, so if we can, can we get to that in a second? Because sure, if you're okay, Germany, let me make a note because I'll forget. For whatever reason, it, I won't. For whatever I promise, for whatever reason, Germany is focused on the M1 Abrams tanks, and the news makes it sound like those are the only tanks the United States has. Well, that's horse bleep. Um, we have Sherman tanks. We have Patton tanks. There's a whole bunch of other tanks that the United States has. The M1A Abrams are the most advanced. Perhaps the Leopard 2 is Germany's most advanced tank. For whatever reason, 
the conversation is focused on the Abrams. The Abrams runs on a jet engine and requires jet fuel. Ukraine can't run uh, tanks on jet fuel. Uh, it, it's just not practical. Uh, number two, that those, they are very, very heavy. Uh, and number three, they are hard to train on. Uh, number four, we don't have very many of them. Number five, we have very few of them in close proximity to Ukraine. And number six, and perhaps most important, they are a bloody fortune to maintain and to operate. Okay, so that's why the United States has said no on the M1A Abrams. It doesn't make sense. Uh, But General Petraeus on CNN late last week said, what the hell? If that's what it's going to take for Germany to allow the transfer of thousands of Leopard 2s and Britain to send uh, dozens or hundreds of, uh, I think they're called the Chamberlain tanks, um, fine. Then let's just send one squadron of M1A Abrams that Ukraine's not going to be able to use anyway, because when that spring of ground assault happens, we have poured over a hundred billion dollars worth of aid and equipment, including HIMARS weapon systems, including Patriot uh, anti-missile systems, including striker and um, uh, Bradley armored vehicles and a whole bunch of other really expensive high-tech equipment. Do we want that stuff to be vulnerable to destruction or capture by the Russians? The answer to that, frankly, should be obvious. So if it's going to take us to send a single squadron, it's disturbing. The Republican chairman, Mike McCall of the, of the House Foreign Affairs Committee said, let's just send one Abrams tank. That's not how that works. You send a squadron of 14 of them. One M1 Abrams tank costs $9 million. 14 of them is about $126 million. Let's call it $150 million. That's one one-thousandth of what the United States alone has dedicated to Ukraine since the beginning of this war. For one one-thousandth of our investment in Ukraine, we're going to say no? It doesn't make any sense. So finally, the Biden administration has come to its senses and said, fine, to hell with it. We'll send a squadron of M1A Abrams. And then Germany says, yay, so now we will allow the Leopard 2s to go. And in fact, we'll build more and send them ourselves. And that will change. This This will alter the situation on the ground, not decisively, but it will help a great deal and, and will be a sigh of relief for Ukraine. Oh, and by the way, the pledge of the M1A Abrams, it's going to be months, possibly years, before a single M1A Abrams tank makes it to Ukraine. This is strictly symbolic, Joan. Oh. We need to yeah. uh, take a commercial break, and uh, then when we come back, we can talk about the subject we put off, which I told you I would forget, except that I think it had to do with Germany. Um, I'm talking to Professor Joel Ostro. We are talking, uh, he's an expert on Russia. He is our go-to person to talk about what's going on in Ukraine. And there's a lot to do with NATO and Ukraine today. We're going to continue our discussion right after this. This is Barry Maltz with a small business radio show. And like you, I've had a lot of businesses over the last 25 years. First, I went out of business. Then I got kicked out by my two partners. Then I sold my last business and I was able to pay back the bank the $1.3 million I owed them. And funny enough, my wife tells me I got her back just about the same time. Join me Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. right here on WCPT 820, where I show you how to get your small business unstuck, grow the company you've always wanted, and finally make the money that you deserve. WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. 
Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. There's a lot going on. There are developments today that... um, really could make a real difference for how the war in Ukraine goes in the foreseeable future. I'm talking to Professor Joel uh, Ostrov, who's from with Benedictine University, and we were talking about Germany, and I believe was it we were talking about, was I asking you about their what was behind their reticence, maybe? And you were going to explain in greater detail later. It's later, and I did remember, and I'm just so shocked that I remembered. I just can't believe it. But please, um, I, you know, give me a little insight into what's really going on. So, uh, you might remember that Germany was the source of a couple of minor conflicts in Europe in the 20th century, uh, both of which embroiled and caused uh, great havoc for and trauma to Russia. The first one, a communist revolution, and the second one, uh, well, occupation and the siege of Leningrad and tens of millions of deaths. Um, uh, and in general, uh, we should be pleased uh, with Germany's um, reluctance to uh, militarize, let's put it that way. Um, and this, uh, this in general is uh, a good posture for Europe and a comforting posture for the world uh, that Germany's um, uh, hesitance to get involved in wars uh, or to be seen as militaristic, uh, you know, that's a good thing. Uh, but this is perhaps an example of extreme rigidity on an issue that requires some uh, rationality and flexibility. Uh, Germany is worried about the optics of German-made tanks on Russian soil uh, or Ukrainian soil, even, uh, because Putin doesn't see Ukraine as Ukrainian soil. He's been very clear. He sees Ukraine as Russia. He doesn't acknowledge the existence of Ukraine. Uh, He doesn't talk about Ukraine other than with mocking derision. Um, This is a genocidal war seeking to not just eliminate Ukraine as a sovereign state, but the Ukrainian people as such. He does not acknowledge the existence of Ukrainian as a thing. So so Germany is wary of anything that might look like putting German tanks on Russian soil. But again, this is perhaps an overly rigid position from what is generally a sound position. and then we know, uh, dating back to the days of Angela Merkel, and uh, really, uh, Germany uh, made itself dependent on Russian oil. Uh, and while it is weaning itself from that, Germany is still a little wary of entirely breaking off relations with Russia. Um, but I think at this point, uh, those questions are secondary. Uh, but to the best I can read it, that explains this situation that, that Germany wants uh, real backing uh, and not to be seen as being left out on its own and uh, that the British Challenger tanks are just not enough in terms of number, that the reality is the best tanks we have that are the most appropriate for the situation on the ground in Ukraine are those German-made Leopard 2s. Uh, um, uh, when, when the, so when the British Prime Minister 
spoke up yeah. seemingly out of the blue yeah. and said, oh, we'll send tanks. We, we will. Mm-hmm. Was that an effort on their part to break this logjam with Germany? Future uh, research uh, by political scientists and historians on this aspect of the war will answer the question that right now uh, we're never going to get we're not going to get the answer to. But if you want my best guess, uh, this was part of the Biden administration's effort at diplomacy. Uh, Mm. The Biden administration asked Britain to send a couple squadrons of those to see if that would soften Germany up. And indeed, it does seem to have softened Germany up. It does. The reality is Poland was going to organize a group of partners to send many squadrons of those Leopard 2s to Ukraine. Uh, even if Germany said no, they were going to just say, screw it. We're sending the tanks anyway. We paid for them. We've got them. Agreement be damned. But that would have been divisive for NATO. And the Biden administration, understandably, uh, wanted to avoid that kind of uh, an action. Uh, so my best guess is we tried to see if that would be enough. Uh, but that wasn't enough for Germany. Do you think if Angela Merkel were still in charge, things would be different? Well, they sort of were in 2013, 2014, weren't they? Uh, mm-hmm. Basically, was appeasement of Russia's seizure of, of Crimea and, and the Donbass region. Um, and that was Angela Merkel and Barack Obama together. Uh, um, and uh, I thought then that it was a grotesque mistake and... Uh, I think now that it has caused caused these problems today, largely, and made things much more difficult for Germany and for NATO. Um, They made a choice, Germany and uh, its European partners in the EU did, to increase their dependence on Russian oil. That was with U.S. support. Uh, We didn't want them uh, turning to uh, Turkey or Iran or who knows who. Remember, Iraq mm-hmm. situation was still very unstable. So, but that, I thought then, as I think now, that that was uh, a great failure of, of the Obama administration and of Merkel's uh, leadership. Um, we don't really have time to get into a new topic, but I'm going to uh, set up what I want to talk to you about, Joel, when we come back after a break. Um, I was reading today, and okay, let me go back. I'm not going back like you, like a history professor. I'm going back like a radio host. So it's going to be kind of terse and cursory here. Um, you know, Russia invades Ukraine all of a sudden, and, and you know, everybody makes a big uh, public statement. Well, Ukraine's not NATO, so, you know, we're not we're not getting in there. We're not getting boots on the ground. We're not getting dirty in this one. We'll give them our support, but they don't belong to NATO. And all of a sudden, uh, Sweden and Finland were like, hmm, you know, like we always thought that if Russia invaded us, that just because they like us so much, everybody would come to our defense. We were kind of counting on that. But maybe we ought to rethink this. And in very short order, both Sweden and Finland decided that maybe uh, ponying up whatever amount of money or commitment was required to be in NATO was worth it for their for their health as a country, uh, which seems fine, except for the fact that <sighs> Turkish President Erdogan 
believes that Sweden is harboring terrorists. Uh, they harbor pro-Kurdish groups. And frankly, they harbor, they allow some groups to live there that even the rest of the world seems a little bit dicey about. Um, but then, you know, Turkey's like, oh, you know, I don't know about this. And then supposedly uh, feathers were smoothed down. You know, there was discussion. Uh, the votes went forward. Sweden voted. Finland voted. It looked like they were ready to just jump in with both feet on NATO. But all of a sudden today, I'm starting to read where, you know, um, maybe Turkey, because it, for you to get into NATO as a country, every other NATO country has to vote yes on you. Because the idea is that somebody invades you and then every other one of those darn countries has to come to your defense. So it's it's kind of all or nothing. And just in the Washington Post today, the Turkish president is saying, you know what? Uh, yeah, I know we had those talks. I don't really like the way they went. And at this moment in time, I don't think I'm going to let them in. So we are going to talk about that aspect of NATO when we come right back after this. Did you know you can text Joan at the same number you used to call us? 773-763-9278. Thanks to our texting sponsor, Camp Kupugani. Register today at multiculturalcamp.com. Text away. 773-763-9278. Information is power. Stay informed to know what's going on. Staying informed gives me the power of knowledge. I wake up. I need to know what happened. I turn on the radio. Because information is power. WCPT 820. Where facts matter. Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. I am pleased to be joined by... Uh, professor of political science from Benedictine University, Joel Ostro. We are talking about, well, we've been talking about Ukraine, but uh, there has been some reporting just today that uh, Turkey may decide or is at least threatening to vote against Sweden and Finland joining NATO. Joel, what can you tell us about this? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head with your summary before the break. Um, Finland is largely, uh, at least the last I heard, um, sort of in the clear. Uh, The bigger problem is Sweden. Um, And just this last weekend, there were um, uh, protests in front of the Turkish embassy uh, by pro-Kurdish groups, Um, some would say anti-Islamic organizations. Uh, They were quite offensive and particularly ill-timed given the government of Sweden's um, desire to to join NATO. Uh, And that was an embarrassment for Turkey. Uh, It's sort of timed with certain announcements around the timing of Germany's elections, which aren't going to be until the fall, but Erdogan announced new elections in the fall. Those elections are not exactly free and fair. Uh, Turkey has been uh, sort of not quite on the outs, but there's been a lot of tension between the EU and Turkey over a variety of uh, anti-democratic policies, uh, domestic inside of Turkey, uh, censorship, lack of political freedom, crackdowns on political opposition, Sweden's position is it's an open democratic society and it doesn't 
uh, outlaw any political association or organization and public demonstrations are allowed. That's something that we as Americans should be quite familiar with and supportive of. Uh, and at the same time, the EU has been pressing Turkey to to liberalize uh, on those fronts, as it has with other um, right-wing governments in, in the EU, including Hungary under the thumb of Viktor Orban's rule. Uh, so, so it's a difficult situation, and um, these events over the last weekend have made things much more difficult for Sweden's application to join NATO. But it does seem that those applications of Sweden and Finland are, are bound together. Um, you can certainly understand. Well, actually, a representative from NATO. A representative of the Finnish government said uh, late this morning, early this afternoon, sort of like uh, I, I'm paraphrasing here. You know, we'd love to join together, but if need be, we'll join alone. Right, right, right. Yeah, not not Finland. Okay, yeah, sure, uh, but but from NATO's perspective, uh, they're probably going to be treated together. Is my guess. Oh, I see. And if you think of it, if you look at a map, you can understand why. And it's going to be very hard to defend Finland without also defending Sweden. Well, then maybe Sweden would get their wish, get the defense that they would need from NATO without having to pay for it, without having to well, join. What you said at the beginning was absolutely right. You know, all that whole phrase Finlandization, NATO was always going to come to Finland's defense if the Soviet Union had taken any action against it. Uh, and certainly that's the case for Sweden. Uh, so uh, the reality of the situation is nobody's confused in any way, shape or form about um, Europe's support for Sweden and Finland. Uh, but uh, but the formality of joining NATO is important because I think Sweden would actually like to be able to uh, to directly through NATO channels support uh, the three Baltic states who are her neighbors, so Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, whose situation is far more precarious than those of Finland and Sweden. And it makes no sense to them if they want to be in NATO why Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania would be in NATO and Sweden not if Sweden wants to be now. So, yeah. Uh, what kind uh, of be, what kind of negotiation uh, do you think before the elections? Yeah, it, it seems like the main issue is, well, is at an impasse. I know that the flag of this one organization uh, that Turkey and a few other con countries consider terrorists um, and Sweden was like, you know, we got no law against waving a flag. I mean, we can't just arrest somebody because we don't like the flag they're waving. I mean. Sweden, you know, is taking a stand for freedom and the freedom to demonstrate. And Turkey is saying, you know what, these we hate these people. We think they're terrible people. Why should we vote you into NATO when we might have to protect you and we think you're a pretty rotten uh, country? What is going to happen behind the scenes um, will Turkey well, be offered that. some concessions from NATO, from the United States? Will there be a trade deal? What kind of, you know, what in the past when an impasse like this has existed, what are the ways it's been broken? Well, I don't know that there's been an impasse exactly like this before, Joan. And I would be remiss, uh, um, someone who participated in a grant program that I ran 
uh, Karwan Ghazni is a member of the regional parliament up in Erbil, Iraq. He's a uh, uh, Kurdish uh, and a Kurdish, oh, you would say, nationalist in the good sense. He certainly supports uh, the creation of a Kurdistan for the Kurdish people. And for those who are not aware, uh, the bulk of the Kurdish population geographically is spread between Syria, Iraq, Iran, and Turkey. Um, the any American uh, service men or women who served in Iraq uh, towards the end of that war when ISIS um, was marching and, and capturing territory and slaughtering people will know that uh, we could have not repelled ISIS. And in large part, we did not repel ISIS. It was Kurdish forces that we helped to iron and train, uh, pushed ISIS out of Iraq and deep into Syria and basically defeated uh, that uh, horrific movement. Uh, and then the Americans proceeded abruptly to abandon its Kurdish allies, uh, largely, it would seem, because of Turkish wariness and opposition, too. Uh, so for there to be a Kurdistan, is gonna, you know, some of that territory is going to come from Turkey. There's a Kurdish population oppressed inside of Turkey. The Kurdish people have been oppressed, disadvantaged, um, attacked systematically by all four of those uh, by the various regimes that have been in power in all four of those territories over many, many, many decades. Uh, and that is the reason that the Kurdish people, many of them, uh, press for statehood, uh, have been uh, evicted from their uh, countries and, and forced to flee. Uh, and so uh, those who support Kurdish uh, independence, uh, whether wherever they exist, Turkey brands as terrorists. And we know about Turkey's position because they're a NATO member. Uh, and as you correctly indicated, NATO is a consensus organization. Uh, it does nothing without uh, unanimous agreement of all of the members. Uh, every state is equal and has a veto uh, over any policy decision. Um, and Turkey is a, is a core NATO member and I believe the third largest military in NATO uh, has, a, has an important voice. Uh, for better or for worse. Often it's for better. Sometimes it's for worse. I know you I hate it. I accept at face value that, yeah. that these Kurdish organizations are terrorists. Uh, you know, that label can be, for some of them certainly have used terrorist uh, methods, but not all of them. Um, and the Kurdish nationalist movement has uh, independence movement, let's call it. Um, there is legitimate cause and reason for that, uh, and it was very slow to develop. Uh, mostly the Kurdish peoples in those territories simply wanted to be able to live as free and equal citizens in those respective countries, wherever they mm -hmm. lived. Um, it, it was a long path towards uh, a movement for independence uh, because those wishes, not only were those desires to be treated equally and fairly in those countries not met, but to the contrary, uh, they face brutal oppression and, uh, and discrimination and um, systematic attack at the hands of the regime So, in each of those states. Joel, we need to take a break, and when we come back, I'm going to ask you to do something that I know you are loath to do, and that is to get out your crystal ball and tell me what you see happening uh, with both NATO and with Ukraine. Uh, we'll be right back after this. 
Can't listen to Joan Esposito? Surely you can't be serious. Live, local, and progressive in your car today? I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. Don't fret. You can still listen to her on the TuneIn app on both your phone and computer. Whoa, you feel that right away. Oh. It's just refreshing. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Professor Joel Ostros with Benedictine University is a professor of political science and an expert on Russia. We've been talking about Ukraine. We've been talking about NATO. What do you see for the very near future, Joel? A lot's going to depend on how quickly uh, those tanks that are available uh, in Europe, the Leopards and the Challengers, how quickly and how many get to Ukraine uh, and how quickly the Ukrainian troops are able to uh, acclimate to them. The latter is like the least of the worries. The Ukrainian soldiers have been just astoundingly quick to uh, not only learn to use but to adapt uh, to conditions, uh, basically all of the weapon systems that we've sent over there. Uh, but they do need them, and they need them ideally before Russia starts to uh, move in. Um, when do you think, um, I mean, you're go- next, do you think yeah. that'll be when it's spring, when there are a chance of, uh, uh, of course, it's supposed to, it supposedly gets really muddy there in spring. You know, uh, do we have a feel for, I mean, is this imminent? I mean, could this be a Russian invasion with their tanks next week? Poland has been lobbying this for so long that I would be surprised if if there weren't squadrons of tanks uh, delivered there as soon as next week. Uh, wow. I'd be really surprised if there weren't. It won't be, you know, and then there'll be a steady uh, roll of more and more as time goes on. But I would imagine the first ones would be virtually immediate. Um I sure hope so, uh, because um, I think part of what the U.S. Uh, military intelligence and, and advice is, is to start pounding in those southern areas again uh, to draw uh, to draw Russia's focus down there um, to make it harder for them to develop any kind of encircling sort of invasion. If they were to send uh, another ground invasion force from Belarus, and uh, from one direction and then uh, push from Donbass and the Russian territory in another, that would be a real sort of pincher kind of uh, movement and, and cause a lot of difficulty for Ukraine. So if you can, Ukraine can push a strong counteroffensive in the southern area, try to break that land bridge, that would make uh, a new Russian assault much uh, less effective um, and disorganized, uh, which it's going to be anyway because Russia is facing, you know, yeah, it, really uh, incredible shortages of uh, high-tech artillery now um, and and their ability to resupply and support uh, a ground invasion force is, is really highly questionable. Uh, even through Belarus, it, it's a matter of shortage of equipment and, and really just disorganization, which doesn't seem to be getting any better on the part of the Russian military. Uh, the most shocking thing of this whole war. I was reading today, well, a few weeks ago, I read that Ukrainian President Zelensky had stripped the citizenship away from a couple of high-powered guys who were big uh, pro-Russia guys. Not that they had done necessarily anything wrong, but that just that they weren't sort of 
they didn't have their hearts and minds in the right place. Today, the Washington Post is reporting that um, he has fired a bunch of high level people because they are not necessarily accused of corruption, but um, they are a little too close to some corruption that has been some graft that has been discovered. And I understand why Zelensky is acting so quickly, because, you know, the one mm-hmm. thing that might really weaken NATO support is this idea that, you know, all this money is going to Ukraine and just making a few people rich. Um, are you surprised or by any of this? Pardon me? No, no, I'm surprised by how little or, or that uh, some of that money is is somehow being funneled to Russian forces in Donbass. Uh, so that first those 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 first Ukrainian so-called oligarchs, uh, they were of Russian ethnicity and, and had clear ties to uh, to Russian uh, wealthy Russians allied with Putin. Uh, so that explains those, and, and uh, apologies, but I, I can't dredge up their names right now. Uh, the announcements today, um, you're right about corruption. Most of that was about um, funneling off um, funds that were supposed to go towards uh, military purposes um, into their own personal accounts. Uh, and uh, right, uh, that Ukraine is a war uh, with a larger hostile invading force on its territory. Um, And uh, uh, Zelensky had to act quickly uh, when the evidence became overwhelming. Uh, There is that they they don't have the luxury of um, long drawn out investigation and court proceedings and all of that. Um, The consequences, the stakes are too high. Uh, It's it's life or death kind of situation. And, uh, he needs to know that the people who he has in charge of, particularly parts of the government that are, and really it's the whole government operation is is involved in the defense of Ukraine in this war, uh, can't afford to have uh, corrupt people uh, working against that effort in their own self-interest. This is not time for self-interest in Ukraine. You know, well, you mentioned, uh, you said a moment ago how, it really is life and death in Ukraine. Maybe I'm naive, yeah. but how do you be, you know, in a position of power and just get dazzled by, ooh, I could pocket a little dough here? I mean, your countrymen are dying. Hospitals are, are getting bombed and you're padding your wallet. I mean, I, I just... Maybe it's because Zelensky has been such a terrific oh, leader man. and so patriotic. Joan Esposito, I know and love. <laughs> Aren't you American? How are you surprised by this? <laughs> oh, I, you know, I, I do understand. No, believe me, I understand graft. But, but when your, when your country's life is on the line, when children are, are dying, okay. that's like taking it to a whole nother level. I don't know. Children die in this country, you know, every every day. Uh, and uh, we line the pockets of gun manufacturers who line the pockets of politicians. I guess. It's different. Of course, it's different. But but it's that kind of thing is in the same category of thing. Uh, because I you talking about kids dying, but the profit is more important. The power is more important. The stakes 
societally are obviously different, uh, but the mechanism of, of greed and corruption is the same. Okay, uh, I guess. But uh, I just I would like to think that even some of our weak willed politicians would fight for if you know if if Rand Paul maybe he's a bad example but if Kentucky were getting gosh. bombed you know maybe Rand Paul would find his soul and stand up i don't know i don't know clearly i'm i'm yeah. having a pollyanna moment <laughs> you're having an optimistic moment yeah. <laughs> heaven help me <laughs> I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> okay, um, Mr. Glass Half Empty. Yeah. Uh, it is appalling. Uh, and and that makes Zelensky's swift action uh, action for applause, not condemnation. We would yeah. handle it differently here. But like I said, they don't have the luxury to handle it differently there. Um, and uh, and let us hope that, that the people he puts in those positions as replacements uh, have Ukraine at heart uh, and not their their own bank accounts or, or whatever. So your prediction with the Russian tanks poised and the NATO tanks poised to come in is that this ground war might escalate sooner rather than later. I don't know about that. What will what hopefully what I expect will escalate or will change is that Ukraine will either shift its focus from Bakhmut and Donbass uh, down to the the southern territories uh, closer to Crimea uh, to uh, to recapture some of that territory. Uh, the if enough tanks come quickly enough. It's quite possible that Ukraine would have the means to continue both of those counteroffensives, which would really be ideal from a strategic perspective, uh, and then um, be able at least to create a standoff situation uh, if Russia does attempt uh, to to move on the ground again. Um, at some point, uh, I would imagine the next focus is going to be on the air, uh, and uh, can Ukraine. Uh, get some toys to drop stuff down on Russia from the sky. Uh, but that is really risky territory, and, and Russia does have air superiority, uh, at least hypothetically. Uh, but with more of those Patriot missile systems, uh, if those do get delivered, perhaps it's actually possible for, for Ukraine also to um, to have some uh, ability to uh, to attack Russian invading forces from the air. I don't know if that will come or not. I don't even know if that's a possibility, but the focus has been so much on, on the tanks and the uh, heavy armored vehicles um, that, uh, that, I, that I trust that both on the Ukrainian side and the, the NATO and U.S. sides, uh, that those are really the key uh, to the future for Ukraine and at least preserving its territory and perhaps reclaiming some of what was lost. Joel, thank you, as always, for being here and being a part of the show. Your insights and your expertise are really valuable to me and my listeners. Thank you so much. Uh, well, thank you for your continued uh, attention to this catastrophe in Ukraine uh, and to international affairs in general. I commend it and, and uh, uh, hope, to, hope to be on with you again soon. Take care, my friend. Uh, that is going to do it for me. I will be back here tomorrow at 2. 
actually, tomorrow we are going to be, you know, we're doing the mayoral forum downtown Thursday. Uh, tomorrow I am going to be broadcasting remotely from the auditorium where the forum is going to take place. Uh, maybe some of my good friends, Patty and Santita, might drop by. I don't know. But we're going to have an interesting show for you. <laughs> and uh, I will see you then. To, uh, p- driving it home with Patty Vasquez is next. Of course, tomorrow at 6 a.m., Santita gets everything started. Until then, stay safe, my friend. Have a great evening. Good night. Good night.